Hello, my name is Prajna Plaman. Today's scripture reading comes from John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Word of God. Hey, Grace242. In 1970, the National Football League renamed the trophy that is presented to the team that wins the Super Bowl. And that trophy presented to the winning team is now known as the Vince Lombardi Trophy. The National Football League named the trophy in Vince's honor because perhaps no other word personifies football like the name Lombardi. And behind that iconic and legendary name are all the stories, all the principles, and all of the impact that this man had on the game of football. Hall of Fame quarterback Bart Starr recounts Lombardi walking into the first quarterback's meeting and saying, gentlemen, we are going to relentlessly chase perfection, knowing full well we will not catch it because nothing is perfect. But we are going to relentlessly chase it because in the process we will catch excellence. Starr says that he went downstairs, called his wife, and told her, Honey, we're going to win. Many have heard one of Lombardi's repeated mantras, Winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Remembering Lombardi's first practice, one player who had spent time in the Marine Corps said that boot camp was a picnic compared to Lombardi. First, the players would take a lap. Then the receivers would run patterns. Then Lombardi would say, okay, now we're going to start practice. Then they'd go to up-downs. Hall of Fame offensive lineman Jerry Kramer remembers that players would lose consciousness, keel over, and vomit from how hard they were worked. In his book Instant Replay, Kramer says, We did 70 up-downs this morning, and the only thing that kept me going was that I looked around and saw some of the other guys my age looking worse than me. Then I figured I wasn't going to die. In the chase of perfection, Lombardi squeezed every last drop of effort out of his players, often by chewing them out for their mistakes. One time, Kramer jumped off sides and Lombardi screamed, Kramer, the concentration period of a college student is 30 minutes, maybe less. Of a high school student, 15 minutes, maybe less. In junior high, it's about five minutes. And in kindergarten, it's about one minute. You can't remember anything for even one minute, so where does that put you? The concept of team was critical to Lombardi. Whereas other teams either prohibited or limited the number of black players, Lombardi didn't care what color your skin was. Here's Kramer again. Vince doesn't care what color a man is as long as he can play football, as long as he can help us win, and all the players feel the same way. That's what being a Green Bay Packer is all about, winning, and we don't let anything get in the way of it. All of these things we associate with football, team, practice, hard work, winning, excellence are all wrapped up in the word Lombardi. That is why the trophy is named the Lombardi Trophy, because the word Lombardi personifies football. Lombardi is football personified. And today we're going to look at another word personified. And that word is the word, word. <laughs> if Lombardi personifies football, then today we're going to look at the word personified. Let's look at John 1, verse 14, and we'll be working out of the ESV. Here's what John says in verse 14 of chapter 1. And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When my mom asked me what I was preaching for Christmas and I told her that I was doing John 1.14, she went, John is actually my least favorite. She said whenever the pastor would preach John for Christmas, she'd be like, ugh, <laughs> he's my least favorite. I think my mom likes Luke a lot better than John because Luke is a historian. He's telling the narrative of the Christmas story. Whereas John is more of a theologian. He is telling us the theology of Christmas. Two very different perspectives. Luke is the historian that's giving us the Christmas narrative, whereas John is a theologian and he's giving us Christmas theology. Look back at John 1.14 where it says, and the word. That word, word is very important. And the Greek for the word, word in John 1.14 is a word called logos. And logos translated means word, which is why our English translations have the word, word there. But for the Greeks, logos was more than just a word. It was also reasoning. It was an explanation. And it was reasoning at a cosmic scale. So for the Greeks, logos was divine reasoning that ordered the universe. It was reasoning at a cosmic scale. By using the word logos, John is engaging two different audiences here at the same time. He's engaging his Greek audience because he's using a Greek word and a Greek concept that is universally known to the Greeks. But then he's also engaging his Jewish audience because what the Jews would do is they would add into the concept of Logos this idea of divine wisdom. Whereas Greeks saw the Logos as divine reasoning, the Jews would also add another layer to that and think of Logos as divine wisdom. And then what they would do in thinking about the Logos as divine wisdom is they would often personify wisdom. Look at Proverbs 8 verse 1 and let's look at lady wisdom or wisdom personified as a lady. Proverbs 8 1, does not wisdom call, does not understanding raise her voice. See how wisdom and understanding is personified as a lady in Proverbs 8 verse 1? So again, John is engaging the Greeks by using a Greek word and a Greek concept, the logos, that's universally known to them. But then he's also engaging his Jewish audience because the Jews would personify divine reasoning as divine wisdom personified, or lady wisdom as we see in Proverbs 8 verse 1. So he is bringing both the Jews and the Greeks together. Now, John is not only brilliant in engaging both his Jewish and his Greek audiences, but he's accessing in using the word logos this rich backdrop, especially for his Jewish readers. If the word Lombardi personifies football, if the word Lombardi brings up all these images of team, commitment, hard work, grit, practice, perfection, execution, all these things that speak of football. If Lombardi personifies football, then the word is going to be personified for an audience that is used to personifying Logos as divine wisdom. So the Jews have this backdrop, this rich history of personification that John is tapping into by using the word Logos. When John uses the word word, he is selecting a word, logos, that has tons of meaning to it and that taps into this Jewish background. So what I want to do is I want to draw four strokes looking at the meaning behind the word word. We're not going to have time to get to all four of those strokes today, so we'll cover the first two today and then we'll cover the latter two in part two of this message. But the four strokes that I want to draw are the creative word, the vocal word, 
the prophetic word and the written word. And I want to look at all this meaning that John is packing, all this theology that John is drawing out by using the word word and then personifying that word for us. Let's look at the first stroke, the creative word. And look with me at the first part of John 1. We're going to read verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the word. There's the word again. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Right out of the gate, John is already using this language of logos, this language of the word. And what does he say immediately about the word? Look in verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. All things were made through the word but without the word, nothing was made. This is the creative word. Now, look at verses four to five, let's continue. In him, meaning the word, in the word was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, with John one, verses one to five in your mind, turn back to the first page of the Bible. We're gonna read Genesis one, and let's read verses three to five. Again, keep in mind what you just read about the word in John one. Let's look at Genesis one, three to five. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Let me ask the students in the house churches a question, okay? So students, this one's for you. You gotta answer this out loud in your house church. How is God creating? When God creates light, how does he do it? How does God bring light into existence? And the answer is right there in verse three. If you don't know, look at verse three. And God said, he is speaking the light into existence. How does God create? He speaks. In verse three, where it says, and God said, the Hebrew word for said is Amar, which means to speak. And then in verse six, Genesis one, verse six, we get the same pattern. And God said, the Hebrew word for said there again, Amar. And then you go to Genesis one, verse nine. And God said, the Hebrew word there again, Amar, to speak. Do you know what the Greek equivalent for Amar is? You know, that's right, it's Logos. So in Genesis one, we get Amar, and then in John 1, we get logos, and both words are equivalent to one another. Here's how powerful the word of God is. When God speaks a word, reality obeys that word. When God speaks a word, he can bring something into existence from nothing. When God says, let there be light, light itself obeys. The cosmos and reality itself obey God's spoken word. Look at Psalm 33, verse nine. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God's word is so powerful that when he speaks something, reality obeys it. Now what's really fascinating is that there is a way in which God shares this idea of speaking something into existence with us. For instance, if you're driving around with your buddy and all of a sudden you tell your friend, man, I could really go for a coffee right now. Let's grab coffee. And your friend's like, yeah, that sounds good. You swing through a drive-thru, you get some coffee. You spoke it, 
and it was acted upon. So you spoke the idea of getting coffee and then you got coffee. So in a way, you spoke coffee into existence. So there is a way in which God shares this with us. However, the degree is different. There are shades to this. There's gradients. When God speaks, reality obeys unquestionably. And our word cannot contradict God's word. This is one of the great lies of our culture today, is that we can speak a reality that's contrary to the reality that God has spoken. For instance, God has spoken the reality that he made them male and female, that he created them male and female. We don't decide our sex at birth. God decides that for us. That's how he creates us. But we live in this lie today that we can speak our sex into existence. That whatever I say, then reality has to conform to what I've said. I can say I'm a man. I can say I'm a woman. I can say I'm neither or something in between or something totally different. And then it becomes reality's job to conform and entertain this delusion of mine. And the truth is, yes, we are called to love all, and we are called to love people who have gender dysphoria, but our love does not mean that we tolerate or indulge these delusions. In fact, the loving thing to do is to not engage those delusions and to be set and firm on the reality that God has spoken into existence, and that is that he's created them male and female, and that God decides, and God deciding is actually a beautiful and wonderful thing, and part of God's image, his imprint that he's placed upon you. So we love, but we do not engage these delusions of conforming reality or pretending that we ought to line up with whatever you say you are in regards to your sex. Let's go back to John 1.14 again and the word. Now look at the word, word. Do you see how John capitalizes the word, word there? That ought to tip us off to something. Why would John capitalize the word, word? Because the word is not a what. The word is a who. Who is this word? Well, let's look at Colossians 1 verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Colossians 1.16 is part of this beautiful hymn. And who is this hymn about? Well, look at the heading in your Bible. In mine, the heading above Colossians 1.15 says, the preeminence of Christ by whom were all things created, and through whom were all things created, and for whom were all things created? Jesus Christ. Who is this word, capital W, that John's talking about in 114? He's talking about Jesus. The word is Jesus, the Christ. Who is the word? The word is the eternally begotten Son who has been revealed to us as Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Look back at John 1, and we'll read verses 1 to 2, but it gets muddled really quickly. But not if you read this with a Trinitarian lens. So let's read this with a Trinitarian lens. In the beginning was the Word, the eternally begotten Son. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I think it really helps to have this diagram of the Trinity in your mind when you're reading John 1 verses 1 to 2. The Word was with God because the Son is not the Father. The Son is with the Father. The Son is not the Spirit. The Son is with the Spirit. But at the same time, the Word was God because the Son is God. The Son is divine. He is eternal. 
The word is a who. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of whom? In the face of Jesus Christ. The word who said, let there be light, is revealed to us as a who. And who is the word revealed to us as? In the face of Jesus Christ. The word is a who. The word is Jesus. John is giving us the theology of the creative word. That's the first stroke. And then he's going to give us the theology of the vocal word, which is the second stroke. After God speaks, uses his creative word to speak creation into existence, he's going to set up Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he's going to speak to them through his vocal word. Let's look at Genesis 1, verses 28 to 30. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. When God is speaking here, God is speaking audibly so Adam and Eve can hear him. The details of this are a mystery to us, but God is vocalizing in a way that is hearable and discernible to Adam and Eve. Have you ever heard God audibly? Now, I personally never have heard him audibly, but the time it came the closest was when I made my decision to come here to Grace as the pastor. I had been auditing a class, a week-long summer class at my seminary, and I had just wanted to do that to take some time to get away, study, pray, be with the Lord, sort through everything that was going on. And so one of the evenings that I was taking that course, I went to Northerly Island, which was formerly Mig's field until Mayor Daly bulldozed the runway in the middle of the night. And so because Mayor Daly bulldozed the runway, they turned the former airfield into a park. So I was sitting in Northerly Island in this former airfield now turned park. I was looking at the Chicago skyline, taking in the beauty and praying. And it was there at that moment that I heard the Lord say to me. Now again, it wasn't an audible voice, but I heard him say to me, Bill, I have laid out everything for you. I have answered all of your questions. I have addressed all of the issues. Now you have to be the one to take the risk. I can't force you into this. You have to take the jump. And it was in that moment that I said, okay, Lord, I'll do it. It was in that moment that I made up my mind to come to grace when the Lord had said that to me. Now again, he did not speak to me audibly. I didn't hear an audible voice, but he did speak to me as sentences that came into my consciousness. This was like him speaking into my thoughts. That's the closest the Lord speaking audibly has ever come for me personally. But I don't think God speaks audibly to everybody. So if you've never heard him audibly, it's not like you're doing something wrong. Again, to me, the closest it's come were those sentences that entered my consciousness that day, that entered my thoughts. So if you don't hear him audibly, or if you never hear him audibly in this life, it's not like you're doing something wrong, because guess what? All of us will get to hear him audibly in the next life. So I don't think he speaks to everybody 
audibly in this life. Now another note I'd give you on God speaking is that God will never contradict what He's spoken in His written word, the Bible. He will never speak to you a word that contradicts what He said in His written word. So a man can never say, yeah, the Lord told me to divorce my wife so that I could go marry this Instagram model. No, that wasn't the Lord speaking. That was your own guilty, sinful lust speaking because that's contradictory to what he's placed in his written word. And so when we're hearing from God, we need to constantly be holding what the Lord said up to what scripture says and ask, do the two match? Because if they're not consistent, then that wasn't a word from the Lord because he will never speak a word that contradicts what he's spoken in his written word, the Bible. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that if I'm not hearing from God, it's because I'm not burying my nose in his written word. It's when I'm in his written word consistently. It's when I'm reading the Bible consistently. It's when I'm devouring his written word consistently that that's when I'm hearing from God the most because he speaks through his written word, the Bible. It's when I'm not invested in God's written word that I'm not hearing from him. So if you want to hear from the Lord, get your nose in the Bible. You'll start hearing from him all over the place because he speaks through his written word, the Bible. I hear from the Lord the most when I'm in his word the most. The word Lombardi personifies football. The word Lombardi puts a face on football. God has personified his word. He's put a face on his word. He's put a face on his creative word and that face is Jesus. The eternally begotten Son revealed to us as Jesus the Christ. And he's put a face on the vocal word and that face is his Son, Jesus the Christ. God has personified his word in the face of his Son, Jesus Christ. I'd like to close with a story that puts a face on both God's creative word and God's vocal word. And that story comes to us from Matthew 8 verses 23 to 27. Then Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up shouting, Lord, save us! We're going to drown! Jesus responded, Why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and waves and suddenly there was a great calm. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man? They asked. Even the winds and waves obey him. Jesus audibly speaks. He rebukes the wind and the waves. And the weather, the elements, the cosmos itself obeys his creative word. In your house churches, talk about God's creative word and the power that his creative word has, you might want to take some time just to think about all the complexities of the universe, the vastness of space, and how God's word just authored all that. And then you might want to think about how we as a culture can in some ways share the ability to speak something into existence, but then also how in sin we pervert the ability to speak something into existence. And how we as Christians can live in a culture where we have people speaking lies, people speaking untruths, people speaking and then demanding that everyone in reality conform to their delusions and how we can be faithful and loving, but at the same time not entertain or be complicit in those delusions. How can we do that? Talk in your house churches about how to be faithful to that. Then you're also going to talk about God's vocal word. Have any of you heard him audibly? Have any of you maybe not heard him audibly, but heard him? 
How do you cultivate a practice of hearing from God? And then how do you verify that you're actually hearing from God and not hearing something else or not hearing sinful inclinations or not hearing selfish thoughts that enter into your consciousness? How do you create a practice of hearing from the Lord and then verifying that you are indeed hearing God and hearing Him clearly? What do you do? And then finally, you're going to talk about what does it mean that God has put a face on His Word? What does it mean that God has revealed His Word to us? And guess what? It's His Son, Jesus. What does that say about who God is? What does that say about how God feels toward us? What are the implications for us that He's put a face on His Word? What are the implications for us that God has personified His Word in His Son, Jesus Christ? How great of a gift is that to us? Talk about how Jesus is such a great gift to us and how the Word personified in Jesus means a huge world of difference for all of us. I love you, Grace242. I'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Grace242. Join me on Christmas Eve, December 24th, in celebrating the true meaning of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, at 5 p.m. at the Student Union in downtown Cedarburg. Hope to see you there as we celebrate the true King, Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs>